Review. I'm Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review, and joining me as usual is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Uh, happy to celebrate the Royals having a new manager. Um, although I must admit, the whole process has been kind of fun um, and not dread like dreading it like I have been uh, under certain general managers in the past. So it's it's been a pretty fun experience. Yeah, it seems like we've been kind of deprived of having the the hunt for a manager experience because like the last two managers, Mike Matheny and Ned Yost, were kind of foregone conclusions. It's like they hired a manager in waiting already. So I guess you really have to go back to Trey Hillman, I think, in 2007 as the last like managerial hire. And that was pre-Twitter, pre-podcast. Uh, I'm sure we had discussions on Royals Review, but I don't I don't even really remember that 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 experience or process, uh, like what other names they, they looked at at the time. So this is kind of a new experience for us. And, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll give our thoughts on Quattraro, the new manager here in just a moment. But let me bring in Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, how are you doing tonight? I, I'm doing pretty good. But you made me think when you said that the that Trey Hillman was pre-Twitter, the next Royals manager may be post-Twitter. <laughs> That's right. Let's see. We'll see how long Twitter lasts. Uh, uh, I don't know if uh, Royals Review needs to pony up eight dollars a month to, to get verified <laughs> or not. But uh, if we, even if we don't have the blue check mark in the future, uh, trust that it's from us because uh, I don't, don't think there's going to be too many imposters uh, for Royals Review. But uh, yeah, so the Royals do have a new manager finally, Matt Quattraro, the 48-year-old bench coach for the Tampa Bay Rays. He is the new manager uh, replacing Mike Matheny. The Royals did interview couple other candidates, a couple internal candidates, and Pedro Grafal, bench coach, who ended up being hired by the Chicago White Sox as their manager, which is kind of interesting. Also, they uh, brought in Vance Wilson, the third base coach, Scott Thorman, who managed at Omaha. They also looked at some external candidates. We at least know that Dusty Wathen, the third base coach for the National League champion Philadelphia Phillies, and a son of a former Royals player and manager, John Wathen. He was also a candidate that interviewed as well as uh, Dodgers first base coach Clayton McCullough. There may have been others, too. We don't know. Uh, they, they don't tend to make this thing too public, and we kind of have to rely on re- news reports. But uh, they did look at some external candidates and decided to go that direction with Quattraro, uh, who was a former Rays minor league manager and went to Cleveland for a little bit to become hitting coach, where he did work uh, for the Guardian, or then Indians when uh, John Sherman was a minority owner. Uh, he then joined the Rays coaching staff in 2018, where he's been a bench coach. And, you know, Matthew wasn't really necessarily, he's not really a big name, but he does seem to be a coveted name. A lot of teams have brought him in for interviews. Uh, what was kind of your reaction to Quattraro getting the job? I thought it was an interesting combination of, you're right, in that it wasn't, it wasn't like very surprising. Um, but at the same time, like it was kind of the perfect hire. I mean, if you think about it, you're like, okay. So close your eyes and think about who your perfect Royals manager hire is post Matheny. Um, he's a young-ish guy probably who you could manage with for a while, right? Uh, Quintara fits that. He's under 50, um, which counts as young and managerial in most managerial, um, uh, you know, openings. It, it's young in general, saying that as a 44-year-old, that it's, yeah, 48 okay. is young. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I'm just saying, like, with, with sports and everything, like, people think, oh, 30 years old, you know, like, four, four, you know, he's he's a young manager if you look at the average age of the managers. And you're right, he's, he's a young human being. And he's got plenty of years in him. Um, he's, certainly so, not, he's certainly not Tony La Russa. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, so the Royals went with a guy who they could, importantly, stick with for, you know, for a while. Like, Kotaro could coach for 10, 
you know, 12 years or managed 10, 12 years and nobody would really bat an eye. Um, you know, there are multiple managers managing into their 60s, some even older than that. So he could be around for a long time. So that's number one. He can, you know, manage this young group. Uh, this The second factor is that he is from an organization that the Royals and John Sherman have sort of not really coveted, but have just talked up as an example of how to operate your franchise, right? So Quattrara's from Cleveland um, and uh, Tampa Bay is, has been both those organizations. Uh, that's the second thing. The third thing is he has plenty of experience. Um, you know, he was a manager in the minor leagues and he was the bench coach for the, for the Rays under, under, uh, Ken Cash. And, uh, that's basically, you know, I, I was explaining this to, to somebody the other day at, at my day job. I was like, he's kind of like, you know, the assistant coach, right? If you think of like an NFL, like the, the assistant coach, um, or the, you know, a coordinator, like, you know, he's, he's just like one wrong, wrong under. So it's not like the Royals picked some just like random person and like gave him a whole bunch of promotions. Like he's just one step away from becoming, you know, a team manager. And he finally got the chance with the Royals. So, um, I, and the final thing is that he is uh, an, an analytics guy and a, a communicator um, and that people, you know, like like him. So I guess that's an additional factor there. So, you know, I, I think it was uh, I don't know if you saw this, Max, but like uh, Eric Kratz like tweeted that he was a guy in the announcement like um, and, and Kratz played for him in, in, in Tampa, I believe. Um, and so. You know, he, he has all these things going for him that are kind of like, oh, yeah, this makes a whole lot of sense for the Royals. And you're right. He was sort of like a name that had been floated around for a while. So um, it's it kind of odd. Like I kept I, I you know, I, under more, I feel like, you know, the, the type of, of, of managers that he picked were kind of at a left field a little bit or just like already part of the organization. He wasn't really willing to like entertain like a full f- free agency kind of thing for the manager other than Hillman. Um, so it was, it was kind of refreshing to see the Royals go out and pick somebody who makes absolutely sense. He's got big league experience um, in terms of coaching. He's got minor league managing experience. He was um, a player, he didn't make the big leagues, but he, he you know, he reached triple A, you know, he, he kind of checks all the boxes that, you know, the analytics, which is, you know, the big um, box that is sort of the, the hot topic really. Um, so it's sort of checks all the boxes and it's, it's nice. I mean, I don't think any of us know for certain what kind of manager he will be. Um, and I think that anybody who says he will be like this and he will manage X, Y, Z is probably not, you know, they're, they are doing some sort of, extrapolation right we don't really know what what he looks like but that is true of any managerial hire of someone who hasn't been a manager before and i thought um that the rose did a really nice job here and it kind of feels weird that there's no like but you know kind of thing but that's that's really nice i i I have you know a lot of nice things to say about the the royals current organization and their philosophy and who they've you know decided to uh go out and hire and they're their philosophy like i said so it's it's very weird but i i, I like it and it makes sense no, no i think you, you kind of put your finger right on the right right where i was thinking like it's it's you know like i said we haven't really gone through this process and in the past we've gone through the process like the pick was like a guy that kind of disappointed the fan base a little bit and the rest of the baseball world kind of said oh that's a royals thing to do ned yost yeah sure mike matheny a guy who had some success but things really went you know sideways in st louis and this is more of a pick where like the fans i think the hardcore fans were pretty pleased with it maybe some casual fans uh, are maybe aren't as familiar with his name and might maybe want a bigger name but i think i think most of the you know people that follow baseball pretty closely 
uh, no, you know, this is an organization we want to get talent from. And I think the people around baseball, the comment reporters and such, you know, they're like, this is a really good hire. This is someone that, uh, you know, will give you a chance for success. And, you know, I wrote an article about how, you know, the, the Royals weren't going to make a splashy hire. Like the Rangers went the opposite direction. They got Bruce Bochy, who's won three titles uh, with the Giants, uh, came out of retirement. Uh, and they, you know, he's, he's a guy, obviously, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. That's a big splashy hire. But, you know, how many years does he have left? Does he, is he up to date with modern baseball? You know, I think the Royals, were they, what they need right now with these young players is somebody who's on the ascendancy, someone on the rise. And, you know, like you said, we don't know if that's Quattrara or not. I mean, some people thought Trey Hillman was at one time, and that, that really uh, didn't work out. But um, I think you have to take that chance that, that, you know, it's like a prospect. You know, they have the upside, but it may not work out. But I think with Quattrara, you have, a, you have like you said, you have, he has a, you have a chance of him being here for the next 10, 12 years, whereas Bruce Bochy, I think, would, would, would bounce after a couple of years, or Rod Washington or Joe Madden. So it makes a lot more sense for the world. So, uh, Jeremy, what was your kind of reaction to Quattrara, and, and what, kind, what are you looking to, uh, to get out of him in the next couple of years? So my first reaction was honestly surprise, um, not because he's a bad hire, but because he seemed to be on everyone's radar as a managerial candidate, and multiple uh, managers were hired before him, um, and, and then the Royals ended up getting him. And I'm just, I guess, I'm kind of used to when the Royals get attached to a very popular free agent name uh, that free agent signs elsewhere, whether that's players or managers. Uh, so I, w- I was honestly surprised. I'm pleasantly surprised. Uh, he, he seems to have quite a good pedigree. I also, I heard a rumor that their favorite for the position was actually going to be, uh, Dusty Wathen and, uh, that they ended up choosing, uh, Quattraro instead because of his excellent interview, which, uh, bodes well to me for the future of the franchise that they're willing to, you know, kind of reevaluate, uh, you know, we had an idea of what we wanted, and and after we did some investigation, realized we didn't want that. Uh, we wanted something else, and and uh, an or, an organization is the same as a person who can who can uh, who can make a different choice uh, than their priors can can really come up with new information and make a different choice is, is headed in a good direction. I think so. Um, those things are both positives for me. Um, as far as, as what I'm looking forward to, um, you know, as I, as I keep hammering home, uh, the big thing the manager does is keep everybody headed in the same direction. Um, there's nothing I've heard to indicate that he won't be able to do exactly that. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, his guardians ties and his raised ties, and maybe he can get a pitching coach from one of those organizations. I'm not, I don't, I'm not really super concerned about where the the pitching coach comes from in fact i'd almost rather that you know your pitching coach doesn't come from one of those organizations because the thing i think the royals really need right now more than anything is 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 more voices more information more just everything um so now we've we've gone outside the organization we've got a new manager who's got you know some different thoughts uh, especially from the rays he learned from and, and by the way he learned from kevin cash uh, in Tampa Bay, who's been an excellent manager, done a lot of really good things with his bullpen management. Um, so that's also a positive. But as we've got more, we've got some new ideas coming in from that are going to be kind of raisish ideas. I'd like to see a pitching coach come in who could bring ideas from yet another vector um, and, and just kind of expand, you know, what the possibilities are for the Royals. Uh, and, and 
you know, I it's if they bring in some kind of raise guy, that won't upset me terribly. But that that's kind of the direction I'm I'm leaning towards. Is I'm hoping that Quattro is just like, well, I got to bring you know my guy from the Rays, and and we all we we're in lockstep in our ideas because I I'm afraid that then you you won't have uh, the breadth of information that you might otherwise be able to gather. Yeah, and I mentioned this before, but I I don't think there's going to be one pitching coach. I think there's going to be a pitching coach, an assistant pitching coach, uh, probably a director of pitching that's probably even over Paul Gibson. I think they're going to bring in an entirely new apparatus to work on pitching development. And, it, and some of it may come from the Rays. Some of it may come from the Guardians. Some of it may come from the Brewers. You may, it may say it come from totally uh, you know organizations you don't expect. But I do think they're going to bring in a lot of new personnel on the pitching development side. Uh, as far as Quattaro, you know, I love the hire. I think it's great. I, I will let, let me Let me play devil's advocate for a little bit here. Uh, you mentioned that you know uh, a lot of teams looked at him. A lot of teams looked at him, didn't hire him. So you know, I know he interviewed, I believe, with the Giants and Tigers at one point. Uh, the Mets, I think, considered him for their job, didn't hire him. Um, so that could be a red flag. Uh, he, you know, we talk about the Rays' pitching development. Well, he's a hitting coach, and he was a bench coach. And bench coaches, I imagine, have their you know fingers in a little bit of everything. And he has been exposed to their pitching development, but you know his 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 background is at least not on the pitching development side, which is kind of what you what I think most fans would say is the biggest priority right now is the pitching side. Uh, and, and then we just don't know. He's never managed before. He is kind of a low key guy, low key personality. Uh, so you know we you know and maybe teams don't need a rah rah guy in the dugout, but um, you know sometimes. Being quiet can be mistaken for aloofness, um, and so we'll have to see. You know, he's never he's never been the guy in charge, at least not at the major league level. So there are some some question marks, Matthew. Uh, does that give you any concerns going into this? Uh, you know, or is or is it kind of a wait and see mode with him? I think there would be question marks with everybody except for the guys who have already managed before and even then pretty much every manager gets fired eventually right that's just you know coaches get fired like andy reed got fired andy reed was a is a hall of fame head coach like bill belichick got fired bill belichick is a hall of fame coach i'm, I'm using the nfl here but like you know terry francona got got you know he's he's with the he's with cleveland now and uh you know he 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 yeah, let go from the Red Sox, I believe. So, you know, I, I think that unless the Royals had chosen a previous hire, there would be questions with anybody. And I don't think that the questions about Quattaro are unique to him. I think that's just par for the course when you hire someone like that. And I think that the type of hire that the Royals made is the correct one. So I don't, I'm not worried because you you could, you know, ask those same questions about Dusty Wathen, about, you know, just about, you know, about uh, anyone who was, who was the uh, Will Venable, you know, sa- same sort of thing there. Like just about anybody you could ask those questions about and, and, you know, bring up those, um, those trepidations. So not a big deal in my mind. Yeah. And Mike Matheny and Ned Yost were both uh, retreads. They'd gotten fired before. So, and, and Yost, I guess, worked out. Matheny, not so much. So there's always going to be question marks with, I think, any hire and, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it means that much the team's passed on him. I think he's, it seems like he's a, a guy that's pretty well respected. Uh, and we'll have to see. You know, I, I, I think uh, this is step one. And uh, you know, there's a, there's a piece this week. Uh, Royal Treatment uh, wrote a nice piece this week about how the you know this the front office still has a long way to go uh, as far as getting where they need to be. Um, and you know, Jeremy, what what 
what what steps along the way do the the Royals need to take? I mean, is this? Do you think this is going to be a long process uh, where you know it's 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 this it basically resets the clock in a way of of how uh, of of when they can be competitive, or uh, is this is hiring a guy like Quattraro make it easier for them to kind of take what they have and kickstart this rebuild a little bit? I don't think it has to be a long process. It depends. Uh, it depends a little bit on how much of the Royals are. Yeah, we have the analytics. We've been doing everything we were supposed to be doing, except for communicating it with the players and helping them buy in. Um, if they've been doing everything they're supposed to be doing as far as gathering the analytics and analyzing them and, and coming up with answers and just not either communicating those with players or not being able to get them to buy in, then uh, hopefully a new manager uh, like Quattaro, a new voice who does believe in the uh, the analytics and does uh, allegedly communicates very well is going to be the, you know, going to be able to speed that process up. Uh, if on the other hand, the Royals analytics are, they, they're, they just haven't bothered uh, figuring things out. Uh, they haven't bothered taking these measurements, all this stuff, haven't paid any attention to it, then yeah, it's, it's going to take a while for them to catch up. Um, it just, it really comes down to, I think mostly, where are they right now? And I, I don't know that we have that answer, because, I mean, they they don't talk about their analytics a lot, but then, you know, and I, I complained about this. I said, if the Royals were really using analytics, we would hear about it more often. And then they came out and said, Oh yeah, well, you know why Brady Singer sinker got better was because we used some analytics on it and we figured some stuff out. And I was like, Oh, well now they're talking about it. Um, and, and that actually gives me kind of hope that, you know, the Royals are not that far behind when it comes to these analytics, when it comes to gathering the information, they're just really far behind on communicating it with the players. And that, that seems to me like it should be a relatively quick fix instantaneous. Of course not, but you know, within a year or two, sure. And, but we'll have to see, I guess. No, I think that echoes what John Sherman was basically saying. I think someone asked him and he said, no, we're we're getting the data. We're just not integrating into our, on-field, you know, uh, on-field uh, personnel. And I think that's the big reason why Dayton Moore lost his job. I think there was kind of a, maybe not ultimatum, but like a, a, a directive, hey, we need to start getting this stuff, you know, in, if infiltrating our, our, our on-field staff. And what are, you know, Dayton, if Dayton Moore is too loyal to Mike Matheny or couldn't get through to Mike Matheny and Cal Eldred, I don't know what the case is, but I think that's the reason he lost his job ultimately. Is he, he could not get that data onto onto the field um you know i do wonder you know the royals have, have talked the talk and we'll see if they walk the walk as well i'm sure they'll try um but you also wonder they start off so far behind the curve or, or at least behind the curve and maybe they can catch up quickly because they have been collecting the data and they just need to integrate it but i also wonder how much more how much left is there to to find out in you know in baseball data like um at some point there's got to be some diminishing returns i would think uh, and the Royals, uh, you know, need to be a team that's ahead of the curve. And if they just simply catch up to the Astros, who are a team that has much more in resources, uh, then it's not, they're not going to be able to compete, right? They need to be ahead of the Astros or, or, you know, ahead of the Yankees because they can't compete on a dollar-by-dollar basis. Uh, so I don't know, Matthew, did you have any thoughts about, um, you know, where the Royals are as far as, 
uh, analytics and the front office and where they need to be. Like, is it going to be a long process or uh, something they can kind of flip the switch a little bit and, and get some results pretty quickly here? I think the the key for the Royals and the key for any team really that's trying to implement analytics is I think the at this point gathering the data is the easiest thing to do. Um, there's a, there's a lot of tools out there. There's a lot of technology out there. I mean, even Statcast, you know, is there, it collects. There's a lot of publicly available data, right? Already, um, and you can make a lot of you know decisions made with publicly available data. Let alone the additional kind of data that that they can gather, and you know, that kind of advanced data gathering has been just you know more and more uh, standardized across baseball in general, not just major league baseball, but across colleges. You see, you hear about colleges using you know uh, stuff like TrackMan uh, all, all the time, you know. So I think that is the easiest part. The hardest part, and I think that we really don't know how how difficult this is truly, and I think this is one of the things that I think was a really good uh, call out by Royal Treatment, is that um, the, the, the hard part is between getting the analytics and teaching it to the players is all the stuff in the middle, right? What data do we use? How do we use that data? How do we communicate that data? And not, this is not just a one-time thing, right? How do we use this data throughout the organization? How do we make sure that all players have access to this to this data? How do we make sure that the coaches are presenting the data correctly? How do we make sure that the coaches are presenting the data in a, a consistent message to the player? How can we make sure that the coaches are presenting it to the players that in a way that makes sense? How can we make sure that the coaches personalize the message to the players so that they can use the data. How do we evaluate players once they're using the data that we give them? There's all of this stuff in sort of the middle um, that teams really have to nail down. And I think that really, if if we're thinking about it in terms of money ball, that is really where I think teams like the Royals can have an advantage over other teams is – you know, making sure everything is completely integrated top to bottom and across the organization, across departments, and that the the vision is cohesive, that the teaching structure makes sense, that everyone buys in. That's really the tricky thing. And I think that even if you're an organization with a lot of money, an organization like the Royals or like the Guardians or like the Rays can succeed by having this kind of integrated system of uh you know of of teaching players what they would like them to work on and an evaluation uh, of those players i think that's really kind of the next frontier and i also think that i think even with dayton moore's rules we're on the right path with like um thinking about um psychology um and the psychology of performance um and i think that that kind of is a thing that uh that not every team is doing either um so yeah, I, I think that's that's really the key. And we don't really know how what the royal setup is currently. We don't know how long it's going to take them to get it to where they want it to be. But that is where the royals need to focus their work. You can't just take someone from Tampa Bay and plop them in a director of pitching role and have them succeed. You've got to be able to incorporate the data throughout the organization. And sure, it would it would help to have outside. Uh, talent, and I, I do expect also them to be some you know changes on the pitching development side. But I think whether this 
whether the Royals were sink or, sink or swim, will have um, a lot to do with stuff that we can't see. That's all going to be behind the scenes. Yeah, and I think a lot, you know a lot of the, the analytics when we talk about analytics, the focus is on improving you know on players, improving spin rates. Uh, defensive shifts, that kind of stuff. I do think there are a lot of um, uses in uh, player transactions. Uh, and, and I think maybe that's some of that's going on, but I think kind of reading between the lines of what Sherman was talking about, um, I, I think you'd like to see more data used in, in how they conduct transactions. So um, I, I'd heard, uh, I think Alex Duvall at Royals Farm Report was telling me that the Dodgers have a logistics person who... His job, or I can't remember, his or her job is to kind of evaluate what the entire organization looks like on a positional depth value, uh, positional, uh, positional depth, and kind of decide, determine, okay, we'll need a third baseman in three years. You know, who do we have under contract? You know, do we need to move this guy at, at this year? Um, you know, what is our, what is our long-term outfield situation look like? And that, there's kind of a data scientist looking at that. Um, the Royals were notoriously bad at, I think, self-evaluation when it came to tra- trades, um, you know, holding on to Whit Merrifield too long, asking for too much when his value was at its highest and then moving him when his value was, was quite low. Um, you know, and I think maybe we saw them maybe loosening that this summer a little bit with J.J. Piccola maybe getting a little more, uh, a little more power to, to make some moves. Like, I think the... I think the Braves trade was something that Dayton Moore wouldn't have done because he overvalues draft picks. But I think Dayton, uh, but I think JJ Piccolo, I wouldn't be surprised if he had some analysis done that said, "Hey, the 32nd pick in the draft is worth X. These three players you can get from the Braves are worth X plus Y. So it makes sense to make this trade." And I think they need to incorporate a lot more of that in their in their um, in their transactions. I've heard a rumor, and I can't verify this or anything. But I'd heard that the analytics department was not a big fan of the Hunter Dozier signing, uh, but that John Sherman trusted Dayton Moore and that and Dayton Moore trusted Hunter Dozier because he had drafted him and was a big fan of him as a person, and he did have a good year. Uh, but that trust, you know, can only go so far, and you know, obviously he's not aged as well uh, into his 30s as you would like. Um, and so, the, yeah, there needs to be some more data on when is it time to lock up a player, when is it time to trade a player. Uh, so I do think you'll see that stuff can be, I think, it, you know, implemented very quickly, and perhaps we'll see the the impact of that in this off season. So uh, I'm really eager to see how, what kind of off season JJ Picola does now that he's kind of it's because kind of JJ unleashed, right? There's no there's no uh, excuse if things don't work out. He can't say, well, it's Dayton Moore who was telling me not to do these things. You know, it's up to him now. He's the man in charge. And I'm hopeful. I think he can. I think he's got the tools, and he's he has the uh, the right attitude to kind of get 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 us in the right direction. But um, it, you know, the execution is going to come down to the details, and the, the devil's in the details. So we'll see about that. Um, I did want to pivot real quick to uh, Matthew. Your controversial piece about the Ghost Runner and why it is good. Uh, and Ghost Runner, what I'm talking about is the and Ghost Runner seems like a misnomer, but it's the it's the extra inning rule where you start off with a runner at second base uh, in extra innings during the regular season, not the postseason. Uh, a runner begins each inning at second base in an effort to cut down on the number of extra innings. Can you maybe give your argument of why the ghost runner is is a good thing? Because it sounds like you know Rob, Commissioner Rob Manfred, in comments to the uh, World Series media, he made it sound like this may be a thing to stay. What's your argument for keeping the ghost runner? Yeah, I mean, so ultimately, like I like the ghost runner. I don't like super love it. Um, and I, it's a weird name, but it's the name that you know, people have landed on. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, I, I, I like the Ghost Runner. 
Um, I think ultimately that um, I, I wrote the piece in part because the response on Twitter of you know of, of Robert Manfred, I think it was it was yeah Bob Nightingale tweeted um, what what Manfred had said, and the response was just like com- overwhelming about this like oh I hate this, and not just like I hate it, but just like. There were a number of tweets, um, and there, there was this tweet from this this uh, what looks like a radio guy in in Philadelphia. It was like, Manfred has to go. No real baseball fan likes the Ghost Runner. Like with there's with this like undercurrent of implication that like, if you don't like it, you're not a real fan. And there were multiple tweets like that, and that kind of pissed me off. So I had to write about it, um, and. A lot of tweets about people people going like, I don't know anybody who likes it. Um, I found a, a, a poll that uh, Seton Hall University did. Um, this was, I think, last year uh, about the, the ghost runner rule. And the, the funny thing is about it is like most people just don't care. Like 50 percent of fans that they polled have no opinion on it or just didn't carry their way. Like 50 percent. That's half. <laughs> um, and interestingly, what. They, they had this subsection, which they didn't explain further, of what they considered, quote-unquote, avid sports fans. And 41% of avid sports fans approved of the rule per their poll, and only 34% dis- disapproved of the rule. So that's basically why I, I wrote it. But ultimately, I think um, I sort of landed on an epiphany kind of actually uh, annoyingly, like, after I wrote it. Um, the ghost runner rule is basically just the college football playoff rule, right, where teams get put right next, right by the scoring position, um, and there's a lot of pressure on it. Stop it because they're in real striking range. And I, there are some complaints about the college football scoring rule, but you don't hear the same types of complaints that you hear about about the ghost runner rule, which is like, oh, it's totally contrived and it's killing baseball. It's not real baseball. What do we do about the stat? Like all of these sort of things. Um, you know, it's just like the college football playoff you know, rule. And it's the same sort of thing. It forces the defense to play really well and it ends up in some exciting play, right? I mean, after three hours of baseball, three maybe three, four hours of baseball, and you're going on to additional innings and baseball is not like football or basketball where there's like a time limit to it. These innings could take, you know, this could take another, you know, one, two, three hours. And those types of marathon games, these like six hour games, they're only fun if you're like maybe there and it's a playoff game, but like people turn off six hour playoff games or, you know, six hour, you know, 15, 16 in games. Not everyone can stay up for it. You know, nobody really likes likes it. Like we like to say that we like these really long playoff games or not playoff, excuse me, extra inning games. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that the data really shows that. Um, and I also saw the stat in so- somewhere that um, that I, I found it and then I must have deleted the tab or something. But um, in 2020 or 2021, after uh, MLB, uh, put in, you know, after the rule uh, got got put in place, ratings for extra inning games on MLB TV went up by a lot after this rule because what happened? There was always a chance that someone was going to score, always. So I think that there are some clear things in favor of it. I get, I get that it would. It's a, it's kind of a big change, but like, I don't really think that it's that big of a difference from what other sports do in these overtime or extra innings scenarios. Um, I get, and I get not liking it. You can definitely not like it, but I was just pushing back a little bit on the like, Oh, I don't like it. And you're wrong. And you're not a real fan. (laughs) Just looking at some, some stats here. This is from beyond the box score. It's a couple years old. 
but I think it's probably still true uh, up through when they change the rule. But so the number of extra inning games, about eight to nine percent per year go extra innings. Ninety percent of extra inning games are done after done by the twelfth inning. So only about one percent of a ten percent one percent of games go beyond twelve innings. So we're not talking about a whole lot of games that this impacts. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I do see your point. Like it, the games get pretty tedious if they go fifteen innings, sixteen innings. That eighteen inning Mariners Astros game uh, was uh, it was tense. It was exciting, but it was long. I mean, I I went to two youth sporting games uh, and came back and still watched the eighteenth inning. So it, it does take a while, uh, but. I just don't like it. <laughs> I don't know, Jeremy. Let me, let me, you can chime in first before I, I let me gather my thoughts about why I don't like the extra inning rule. What do you What do you stand on on uh, the Ghost Runner? I I don't care. I'm, I'm <laughs> You're in the fifty percent, man. I'm, I'm in that fifty percent. I think it's fine. I I think that uh, Matthew made an excellent point in his article that no one no one here paid to watch the third string second baseman. Uh, flail at pitches from the eighth best reliever five hours after the game started. No one, no one wants that really. Um, I think in the playoffs, and, and I think they got it right by not having the uh, the the ghost runner in the playoffs because the tension is ratcheted so much higher in the playoffs. There's 162 regular season games. A win or two here or there very rarely makes that much of a difference, and it. I think it just makes more sense to get out of the game and and set yourself up for you know for the next day um, and, and not waste everybody's time. Um, I, I feel like when we're talking about baseball, this big thing we keep talking about is the pace of play, um, and they're trying to do some changes to fix that, and they keep doing changes. I think this is really one of those changes because I think you know again like a five-hour game no one's got time for that we've got lives to live we've got jobs to to go to got recaps got, to write yeah recaps to write <laughs> uh, but it's just it's 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 fine i i think that my best guess and and i will say not everyone because i know uh where you stand but i i suspect a lot of people are opposed to the rule simply because no, you can't change the rules. It's this is a hundred year old sport. Changing rules is bad, and and we I've seen this reflex reaction from baseball fans for the entire time I've been a baseball fan, and I've never understood it, and I don't think I ever will understand it. Sometimes rule changes don't matter. Sometimes they're better. Sometimes they're worse. Yes, but. I don't see how this is one of those times. Well, so I am one of those. I'm a baseball, I think, purist, at least more purist leaning. And I am one of those people that says baseball has been played for at the professional, you know, at a high, the major league level for 120 years. And it's mostly the same game as we've as back in the 1900s. Now, we have seen rule changes. And I'm not saying no rule changes. I think some rule changes have been for the better. Um but there had to be a very, very compelling reason to change. So they added the designated hitter because offense was was getting uh, too too impotent. Uh, they you know they've added they've added changes. They got ruled out the spitball because of you know players con- uh, concern for player safety. Um, there are there are changes that make sense. Uh, a pitch clock at this point makes a lot of sense because games have gotten too long. Pitchers are too much dawdling about. Uh, so I I 
I'm of, I'm not against all rule changes, but this seemed like, like I said, it's one percent of games uh, that some people have to stay a little bit longer for a fifteen inning game. That doesn't seem like, and you don't have to stick around. You know, you can turn it off. Uh, I don't think that's a terrible thing. Uh, there's a little bit of craziness that goes with a long fifteen inning game. Uh, to me, really, the more the bigger problem is an an eighteen inning zero zero game, and the problem more is that there's just not enough offense right now to break a tie. I think that's the big problem why we have some of these long games is that the offenses can't score anymore because these guys throw too hard with too much movement, and it's just it's just impossible to even get a guy on and move him over in a lot of cases because these, these pitchers have become too dominant. So I think something needs to be done more on that end, a rule change to lower the mound or move back the mound or limit how many pitchers you can carry on a roster. Maybe, you know, we need to... We could go have, back to the original underhand pitching. We could. I think that would be a little drastic. Uh, <laughs> or, or, you know, when the batter can request where he wants the ball like they did back in the 1870s. But um, I, I would rather see... Because I think that... I think that's really the bigger issue is that we can't break ties anymore because offenses don't score. They're all, and we saw it with that Mariners Astros game, right? Everyone was swinging for the fence. Everyone was trying to end it with one swing of the bat. Uh, and you know, maybe that's, that, that's what the extra inning is trying to, to, to play, you know, play guard against is that, you know, we're going to try to get guys to move the, move the runner over. But uh, to me, it's just too drastic of a rule for something that wasn't that big of a problem to begin with. That's why I don't like it. I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll, it'll grow on me. I mean, I was against the wild card at first. Now I'm like, eh, it's fine. Um, the, the universal DH, I was kind of a little less against, but I was still against it. Now I'm kind of like, okay, it makes sense. So I'll probably change my mind, but um, I, I just don't like, <laughs> I don't like the extra inning rule one bit, and I wish it would go away, but that's just me. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Elijah Flewellen of D-Rays Bay about Matt Quattraro, and then we'll bring, uh, bring it back with Matthew and Jeremy to wrap things up. Joining me now is Elijah Flewellen yeah. of D-Rays Bay. Elijah, thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so the uh, the Royals named Matt Quattraro as their new manager. He began in the Cleveland organization, but has served as a coach. Uh, actually, that's no, sorry. So the Royals have named Matt Quattraro as their new manager. He uh, started with the Rays in the minor leagues, but uh, moved on to Cleveland for a little bit, and then came back to the Rays as a coach starting in 2018. Uh, what are the Royals getting in Matt Quattraro? We, you know, we've heard his name. Uh, you know, he's up been up for a lot of jobs. Uh, what's kind of your impression as a Rays fan is what, what you know, is what, what kind of guy he is and what kind of a manager he might be with the Royals? So, uh, Q, as he is affectionately called, um, first off, great human. That's what the Rays, that's one of the first requirements is, as far as being in the Rays organization. You've got to be a great human first. So, great guy. Um, players and staff have raved, up, raved about him. He's interviewed for about 10 uh, managerial positions over the last two, three years, I want to say, off the top of my head. But um, great guy, great baseball mind, um, especially in his transition from um, third base coach to um, the bench coach role that he has, well, he had with the Rays. Um, really high baseball IQ. Um, just overall a really good guy, really good hire by the Royals. Definitely, definitely should be pleased with the hire. We, I, the impression I got is he's not exactly a, a rah rah guy. He's not going to be like overturning tables. Um, what what do, you, do you have any kind of impression of what his relationship is with players? Because uh, you know I, I don't I don't know that I'm that concerned that he's not 
a vocal guy, but I think uh, what the Royals have really stressed is like communication and being able to uh, kind of be more of an organization that, that stresses data. Can you speak at all about uh, what his role has been in that regard? So definitely big into data, but definitely has a, has a feel for his players. Really likes to get a feel for what his players do well and then capitalize off that. So, for instance, like you see with the Rays' current roster, roster construction, you have a reliever uh, like Jason Adams who came in uh, during spring training on like a, a, a very, very low – Hush uh, hush deal. Well, not hush hush, but you get what I'm you get what I'm trying to say. Um, really, really low on the radar deal. Uh, comes in and throws, you know, for most of the year, uh, ERA sub 1.5. Um, but definitely getting the most out of their players. Like for instance, with Colin Poche being a really really high spin fastball guy, capitalizing on that and then trying to find a. Um, secondary pitch for him, which will be his curveball. So just getting them maximize and win ball games, to tell you the truth. You know, we've seen a number of Rays coaches leave to take jobs as managers. I mean, Dave Martinez with the Nationals uh, back under when Joe Madden was there. Uh, more recently, Rocco Baldelli with the Twins, Charlie Montoya with the Blue Jays. Uh, you know, not all of them had, like, uh, you know, tons of success, but, you know, some, some winning teams, certainly. Um, is, there any, is there any kind of common thread with these guys, or is it just uh, a lot of teams looking to kind of poach talent from a successful organization? Um, I think it's a little bit of both, just because Braves do so well with so little, trying to trying to muster some of that magic up. But it's, it's really not necessarily magic. It's, it's awesome uh, preparation, Awesome preparation, awesome having a feel for your roster, and just making guys feel comfortable. Like one of the reasons why um, players love, especially once they get here. For instance, Tyler Glassman, we just we just signed an extension. Once he got here from Pittsburgh and realized the, the dynamic of the clubhouse and how you can just be yourself, there's really only one rule: is just be a good human and do whatever you have to do to. Um, to be successful, and then we'll work off from that. Um, and then another thing with the Rays dynamic, as far as um, how they treat their guys, they all, they're always you know open door. They're players first, meaning they'll they'll you know they're they're straight they're straight shooters. They'll tell you what what they're asking for, and then they'll they'll do whatever they can to help you to get there. But as far as the Rays way, just getting getting the most out of their players by being uh, honest with their players and uh, promoting a good clubhouse atmosphere. You know, the, when the Royals uh, kind of dismissed Dayton Moore, uh, owner John Sherman talked a lot about the Rays as an organization he kind of wanted to emulate, you know, how successful you guys have been in developing pitching, something we've really struggled with really for, you know, 10, 20 years now. Um, and you talk, you know, you talked a little bit about this, you know, Jason Adam, obviously a guy that the Royals used to have, uh, Kansas City kid who – you know, he had some promise, but struggled with with walks, and then goes to Tampa Bay and is uh, really was deserving an all star all star berth, uh, but certainly had an all star type season. Um, is there, you know, as a Royals fan, we look to the Rays as, as really uh, the model organization as far as pitching development. Is there a secret sauce as to why Tampa Bay is so good at this, uh, especially when they when they do it on such limited resources? I mean, I, you know, I know a lot of it's kind of behind the curtain, but is there anything you're, you're able to, to, to glean from what the Rays do uh, that makes them so successful? I would say as far as 
as what they look for as far as talent, really capitalizing on what a player does really, really well and building off of that. So, like, for instance, when the Rays made their trade for Yandy Diaz going into the 2018 season, um, they knew he had really high on base. They knew he hit the ball really hard, but he didn't hit the ball in the air. So they capitalized on, on um, his high on base and then worked off of that. And then he just put up his best uh, season of his career in 2022. Um, another example would even be uh, Kevin Kiermaier. We, um, again, really, really, really great defensive player. Probably lacked a little bit on the bat side, but you take the good with the bad as far as him giving you, you know, gold glove or platinum uh, glove caliber defense. And working with that. So it's really getting the most out of your roster wherever you can. Um, I'm trying to think of another player that I can I can use as far as the Rays model. Um, Colin, po- Colin Poche is a really good one just because really high spin, uh, deceptive fastball, but you can't throw it all the time. So, you know, he makes it in his curveball. Had really good numbers this year. Um like you have guys like Tyler Glassnow who had trouble uh, locating, um, and then when they brought him over, they did pretty much instantaneous his first outing that just had the catcher, you know, sit middle middle and let the ball do whatever. Because if you um, focus on location, that's where he struggled when he first got over. Um, another example would be Evan Ryford. We got in a trade for Mike Brasso in the um, actually this season. Um, that is another great um, addition in what he's doing in the, in the Arizona Fall League. He is leading the Fall League in strikeouts and um, strikeout-to-walk ratio. Um, for, when he was with Milwaukee, he had trouble uh, locating. And get, once again, with the Rays, they had the catcher <laughs> position himself right, right in the middle of the plate and let the ball do whatever. Because if, if he sat too far inside or outside, he'd have trouble with location. I would say the Rays search for either high spin or high velo and just let let the stuff take care of But definitely um, taking advantage of strike one. Strike one is the most important because it can set everything else up. But um, just focusing on what a player does and, and try to maximize that. No, I think that makes a lot of sense too. I mean, you want to – I think where the, where the Royals fell, fall into uh, traps is like they wanted to, a one-size-fits-all for all pitchers. And, and what I'm hearing from you is that the Rays kind of worked with guys to adapt to their strengths and weaknesses, which is uh, I think it sounds like a smart way to go. And, you know, talk about guys having trouble locating but having good velocity. Well, the Royals have lots of that. They had lots of guys that had trouble locating. And uh, uh, it'll I guess it'll, we'll have to see who they end up hiring as a pitching coach. But uh, if Quattrario can bring some of that strategy and that development over with him from Tampa Bay, I think that'll be a huge plus. Um, yeah, I did want to talk a little bit about you know you, you talk about some of the trades. Absolutely. And, yeah, so you talk about some of the trades the Rays made, um, and and the Royals have talked about being a little more transactional. The, you know, in the past, I think they've been criticized for hanging on to players too long or being too reluctant to make a trade. Uh, but the Rays, of course, they they are willing to make a trade even if it hurts a little bit in the short term to get a player they think fits long term. As a Rays fan, though, I mean, it's got to make it a little hard to maybe get connected to players. What's kind of your stance on, uh, I mean, how, how do you kind of deal with the, you know, the, the, the roster churn? Is it, I mean, is it okay with you as long as they keep winning? Or does it make it a little harder to connect, connect with the team? 
I would say you take both the good with the bad. Of course, you want to uh, you want to attach the players like definitely like the young the core that you guys had in 2014 and 2015 with Gerard Dyson and Lorenzo Cain and Eric Cosmer and Mike Moustakis and, and Alex Gordon. It's beautiful to have and it's nostalgic to have when you, when you have um, reunions and things of the like. But the Rays take uh, the stance of. If you uh, if you get in the playoffs, if you set yourself up to get in the playoffs year in and year out, all you have to do is get hot one time to win one championship. So, giving giving yourself the best chance you can year in and year out, as opposed to going in all in one year and putting and, and going that way. Um, but it, it does get tough at times with with um, roster turnover turnover, but you trade the roster turnover for wins. So since since 2019. Uh, you have, you know, 19, 20, 21, and 22. You've made the playoffs four years in a row, and you went to the World Series in 2020. So you take the good with the bad as far as as far as um, attachment to players and, and, you know, trades and things of the like. No, yeah, it's interesting you talk about, you know, giving yourself the most opportunities. That sounds like what, what John Sherman was saying. You know, he was, he was like, you know, you hear about the Royals winning the championship in 2015, but – I'd like to make a wild card, you know, wild card game, you know, once in a while, like, you know, some of these other teams and yeah, the Rays, you know, they, they haven't won it all, but they certainly had a lot of chances. And one of these days you figure they're going to kind of break through and, 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 and reach the summit. Uh, and it'd be nice if the Royals kind of get to that, got to that point where they were, you know, at least uh, contenders or at least uh, a good team every year uh, and breaking through every once in a while. So we'll have to see if the Royals can kind of follow that model and, uh, and, and have the same success Tampa Bay had. Uh, Elijah, uh, thanks so much for joining us. You can check out his work at DRaysBay.com, all the latest news uh, and analysis on the Tampa Bay Rays. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what, what direction they go with uh, with bench coach now that, uh, you know, Quattraro is gone. Uh, but uh, definitely uh, we'll check that out. And, and thanks so much for being on the podcast. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. All right. And we're back uh, with our Royals review reviews. Matthew, why don't you kick it off for, for us this week? Yeah, sure. So um, I will uh, throw it back a little bit to a book I read earlier in the year, uh, but it's a book called um, This Is How You Lose the Time War. Um, and this is a, a delightful sort of, it's technically a novella. So a novella, I don't know, I think it's like less than 60,000 words, 70,000 words, 80,000 words, something like that. Um, so it's pretty short, you know. Um, most novels are, you know, 80,000 to 120,000 words by, you know, by comparison. And your, your really long novels are like 200,000. So, you know, 60,000 is in comparison, you know, it, it's a pretty short book. You can, you can read it, um, you know, very quickly. Um, and it's enough too. So, um, you know, when everything has got sequels, um, it's kind of nice to just read it like a one-off book, um, here and there. Um, and basically, uh, this is uh, co-written, so it's written by two people, um, and it uh, is two different narratives of two um, individuals who are on opposite sides of this time war that sort of like stretches back and forth across time. Um, and it is uh, kind of a it, it, like a sci-fi kind of romance um, situation where they're leaving each other notes and they're on opposite sides of of this war um it's a really nice book uh really good read um it's it's unique it's not like a lot of things um and it's pretty quick too so um if you want to
to uh, read just a one-off book and, and enjoy it. Um, that's great. If you want to read a series, you know, not so great, but you know, not everything needs to be a series. Um, and I think this is, you know, just one of example where um, it's a really creative work and I'm glad that it got some recognition. Um, and yeah, so it is called, this is how you lose the time war. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? Uh, let's see. I thought about rec- recommending this new mobile game I've been playing, uh, Marvel Snap, but God, it's addictive. Don't do not do this to yourself, people. Do not play this game. Uh, so instead, what I'm going to recommend is uh, I'm going to recommend one of my favorite anime. Uh, it's, it's been a couple of years since I watched it, and it's been more than a couple of years since it first aired. Uh, but you can find it on Hulu. Yu uh, Yu Hakusho uh, is a classic shonen anime uh, about this kind of ne'er-do-well uh, high school kid who uh, who's skipping class uh, one day when he um, finds a small boy playing with his ball near the street. Uh, obviously, as you, you probably imagined immediately as I described that scene, the little boy loses his ball into the street, chases it into the street in front of oncoming traffic, and uh, Yusuke, uh, the protagonist, chases him out, gets him out of the way, but gets hit by the car and dies in the first episode. Um, so it's not a normal way for a show to start, but uh, he quickly uh, turns into a ghost and and uh, is offered the opportunity to become a spirit detective by the the one of the leaders of the underworld. Uh, and he gains magical powers and trains in martial arts and begins fighting supernatural threats uh, around the Japan. And it's it's really fun. Um, it's got some some really good uh, voice acting, some really heartwarming stories. Uh, one of the best tournament arcs I've ever seen in anime, and of course, tournament arcs are always the best part of a shonen anime. Anyone who's watched those will agree. <laughs> uh, and and it's it's just a lot of fun. Um, the, the characters are all very charming, and I can't recommend it more. Great. Uh, this week, I'm going to recommend. I feel bad recommending this because I'm not don't done with the book, but I'm I'm more than halfway done. So I feel and I have enjoyed it. So I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, recommend uh, Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn. It's it's well recognized as one of the best baseball books ever. Roger Kahn was a writer at the New York, I believe, Tribune, a Herald Tribune, uh, and he covered the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1950s. So the first half of the book is about him growing up um, as a Dodgers fan. And then becoming a writer, a beat writer, covering um, Jackie Robinson, uh, Duke Snyder, uh, and all the Dodgers that uh, went on to win a couple pennants and, and eventually a title. Uh, but then the second half of the book is him catching up with the, the players much later after they've retired. Uh, so just a really interesting perspective. I, you know, number, number one, just his perspective of watch of, of him recounting his growing up, uh, watching the Dodgers and and talking with his dad is really interesting, and it brought back. Memories of me talking to my dad about baseball growing up with the Royals and then also talking with my son about the Royals. So it's kind of nice on that perspective. And then also just getting a, a nice an, a nice idea of what it was like to cover a team in the 50s. Um, I think just one of the th- things that struck me is how, I don't know, I don't want to sound like an old man, like like things were better back in the day, but like people seemed a little more intellectual back in the day. Like one of the Dodger pitchers push, pulls him aside and asked to share some poetry with him, which I can't imagine Brady Singer pu- pulling, you know, Lynn Worthy aside and, and talking poetry, but maybe they do. I don't know. Uh, you know, not everyone's like that. The manager of the Dodgers at the time is, is hardly literate. 
Um, but it's it's a really well written, um, uh, really well written book, and I, I'm I'm really eager to to finish it and see how it, it turns out. But uh, the Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn, oh, considered a baseball classic, and uh, I would highly recommend it. At least the first half that I've I've covered so far. Well, that'll do us for us this week. Uh, thanks to uh, Elijah f- uh, for being on, and for Matthew and joining Matthew and Jeremy for joining me. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in, and we'll talk to you all next time. Hey!